Welcome back to Shrinking It Down. I am Khadija Booth Watkins with the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Digital media is on the minds of all of us today, and we are thinking about how to be more vigilant and more media literate. And so we have compiled some of our greatest hits um, to help you think about what to look for, when you should be worried and what you can do. And we've also kind of included some things to help you to have some conversations with your young person. Um, again, we're all worried about uh, and thinking about how to be more vigilant and, and media literate. So we hope that our conversations help you to navigate this with your young people. So on today's show, we're going to spend a little more time using our shrink brains to process these claims about mental health harm that Instagram is causing or allegedly causing, uh, and then talk through some guidance to help our young people navigate social and digital media in healthier and safer ways. And I might add, to help our parents and caregivers navigate digital media in healthier and safer ways and provide guidance for our younger people. It shouldn't be the uh, job of our young people to have to protect themselves, but um, we're all hostages to this new digital age and um, we need to know how to harness it and how to protect ourselves and protect our kids. So Khadija, what do you think? I think we should jump right in. Um, and I'd like to start by talking about Instagram. And for those who are listening who haven't seen the 60 Minutes interview with Francis Helgen or read the initial Wall Street Journal article that uh, leaked, that showed the leaked Facebook research, you can find those in our podcast descriptions. Um, but it's all really, really upsetting. And Facebook's own studies have found that 13.5% of teen girls say that Instagram makes their thoughts of suicide worse. And 17% of teen girls say that Instagram makes their eating disorders worse. And what Frances Haugen said in the 60-minute interview is that Facebook's own research says, as these young women begin to consume the eating disorder content, they get more depressed and it actually makes them use the app more. And then as you can imagine, it's a vicious cycle. And so they end up in this feedback cycle where they hate their bodies more and more. And that is so concerning and alarming considering how much time teenagers spend on Instagram and other social media platforms. That's the downside of digital media. As, as Jen Duren and I wrote about uh, on the Clay Center site, Digital media is dangerous for, particularly for girls and body image. It's because it tends to inflate, I think, the ideals of what we see as beautiful, acceptable, being in control, valuable, um, and and, and uh, particularly, unfortunately, in our society for women and girls, but also for boys in, in various other ways. Body image is really important. For adolescents, image, image, image is pretty much everything. And um, I think when we're talking about body image, we, we, we are running into issues that have to do with um, self-esteem and with feelings of control and with how we're accepted by others. Um, and in some ways, it's so superficial because what we really care about, and if you ask any teenager, they'll say, well, what I really care about is do people like me? Am I a nice person? Am I good to others? Am I caring? And yet, 
the power of image, the power of being a celebrity, the power of being beautiful is so compelling that it's hard to get away from it. And if you're someone who is not able to look at this information and think about whether this is something that fits you and your circumstances situation or whether this is healthy for you and your circumstances situation, it could be really dangerous. Um, some of these these fad diets that are, that are um, promoted on, on Instagram and, and other social media sites are, are not healthy. And, and even beyond not healthy, they, they are also dangerous. And on online, everyone looks great and wonderful and they look you know refreshed and they're glowing and they're glistening. But that's not always the truth because it really is just what they want you to see. And I think I was talking to someone the other day. It's kind of like, you know, give me the secret to your you know, Thanksgiving gravy sauce. But if I give you all of the, the ingredients and leave out my secret, you're not going to be able to make my gravy sauce. Like, so they're giving you tidbits of what they want you to see, which is often a finished result, but they don't give you the big picture, the whole picture. And, and some kids are, are, are too young to realize like there's some missing pieces here. Like this doesn't all add up. Um, and so they seek to achieve what they see online. So one thing that, that jumps to my mind is, is uh, how, how you feel body image affects self-esteem and, uh, and, and, and why should parents or caregivers care about this? So, and, and what, what conversations can they have with them, girls as well as boys, uh, to um, help, them, help them manage it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've seen consistently that body image and self-esteem some it can be hard to disentangle the two sometimes if, if one isn't happy or satisfied with, with the way they look or if they're in the position that they're constantly making comparisons to other people whether in their life or in the media which i'm sure we'll talk about later um it, it can impact self-esteem and I think it starts at such a young age, kind of almost like passively learning, you know, what, what's, what's a good body and what's a bad body and what's acceptable in society and what's not. And so I think the way that parents and caregivers talk to their children about it really kind of vary developmentally. And, you know, I, I think young ki younger kids, you know, instead of saying like, oh, you're so pretty, you're so beautiful, aren't you cute? You know, we're saying those in complimentary ways, but it is such a focus on, on their body and their appearance and how they're looking. How about, you're so kind, you're so smart, commenting on other things that, that are um, complimentary of the child. We really see body image and negative body image more so coming into play in, um, you know, pre-adolescence and into teenage years, so middle school into high school, particularly for girls, because often that kind of coincides with puberty and, and sometimes drastic and, and quick body changes um, that can happen during that time that, that draw attention um, um, to the changes in their bodies and comparisons with other people who may be developing in, in different ways at different times. And I think that you know, the way that caregivers and, and parents can talk to their pre-adolescents and teens, um, just kind of having an open mind about it and curiosity and um, 
you know, if, if they start making derogatory comments about their appearance or wanting to change certain things about it, being curious about it, where it comes from in a very non-judgmental way. And then also in the home, kind of watching your own diet culture and self um, deprecating talk around your own body too, I think, I think is huge because kids pick up on everything. So I, I think the, the idea of going back to what you said about the comparison and how that plays on self-esteem and how important self-esteem is, it, it makes me think about exposure and what kids are exposed to. And so, you know, we're going to get back to social media, but I want to talk a little bit about reality TV. And in full transparency, I'm not a super duper reality TV fan, but I do get, that's what I did on my vacation with my sister because she is. So they watch <laughs> a lot of reality TV. Um, and you wrote this amazing article for us about the effects of re the reality TV on our young people. Um, and so I'd like to hear a little bit about your thoughts about how reality TV impacts our youth. Um, because what I did take away from your, your article is that a, a lot of times there's not there's blurred lines for, for young people when they watch reality TV between what's reality and what's not. And then what is also so striking for me is, is often in some of these shows, you have these amazing people who have great accomplishments. And at the end of the day, what we focus on is their their body, their drama, their, you know, all of those right. things that aren't really substantive and, and, and important. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the name reality TV is such a misnomer and it kind of sets the stage for someone watching it and thinking they're like really glimpsing into someone's real life, you know? And, and I think that's where it gets blurred. I saw another, uh, I thought was a better word um for reality tv it called it a docu-soap because it's kind of like a soap opera a documentary like soap soap opera like not really weird but we're calling it reality tv so we're assuming or going into it assuming that it's real when in reality there are a lot of scripted things and editors are picking and choosing the drama that we're watching um and you're so right what is often focused on these things is not you know the day-to-day -day lives of, 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 you know, whether they have an accomplished career or whether, you know, the, the values within their family that, that are for good. It's, you know, more often than not some sort of catty drama. And that's what we're talking about at the end of the day. And that's what keeps people watching too. There is something um, just like a soap opera. People, people continually go back to it. I think that, you know, I, I think of keeping up with the Kardashians, for instance, and, and how vanity um, and focus on the vanity that every member of that family has um, on themselves that really also bleeds into social media, too. And there have been um, studies, and it, particularly with the Girl Scouts of America, did, did some research around reality TV and really saw that, you know, those girls that watched more reality TV did place more of an emphasis on their appearance. Um, now this, you know, I, I it, it's hard to say, you know, correlation versus causation, like what were people more focused on their appearance, more drawn to reality TV, but it was just pretty consistent across the board how those that watch reality TV do tend to have a more of a focus on their body image, um, vanity, 
um, and just a lot of interpersonal drama um, that, that occurs that sometimes, particularly kids who are like younger and impressionable can imitate in their own lives as um, acceptable. When as adults, we watch it and we're like, whoa, that's like completely off base of what happens in the workplace or what happens in book club, you know? Um, <laughs> Outlandish. Yeah. <laughs> Well, are there any reality TV shows that you can think of that depict like ordinary, regular people in a truly more reality way, like that that they're really focusing on the values and, and all the substance of the people? Yeah, you know what's so interesting is I, I was kind of thinking about that earlier today and nothing jumped out in my mind. And so I think that that says something. Um, I also don't watch as much reality TV as I used to as well. Um, so, so it's hard to say, I think that we try, um, but at the end of the day, TV is entertainment. Um, and that's what draws ratings and draws people coming back. It's hard to think of something. I, you know, I'm thinking about representation in TV, like more scripted things um, that I think we're seeing more and more. And even, even in like Disney and Pixar cartoons and movies, starting to see more representation um, of different sizes of bodies, which I think is a huge step. But I don't think we're seeing that as much in reality TV. Okay, so so cards on the table. Yeah. Have you played a video game? I've played, you know, I, I played Nintendo. I, I do I do not play video games. I played Nintendo a few times with my kid. That's that's a console. That's not a game. <laughs> I know. Like what game? I played Mario you, Kart. You played okay, okay. So um so <laughs> I mean that's it. And I lo I lose terribly. Yeah, yeah. I can't work the damn console. My so, my, my so, son my son loved playing with me. Right. So the reason I bring this up, I remember like beating the poop out of my dad on Atari, which is like an ancient device yeah. now. But the no, I'm not I, a video game player. Right, so there, that's why I bring this up. I'm not a game it, player. There's a, there's a bit of irony from um, two kind of middle-aged white guys talking about uh, Thank industry. Thank you for calling me middle-aged. You, well, you're very welcome. <laughs> Thank you for accepting that I might be. Um, talking about an industry that actually doesn't cater to us at all. Right. Gambling might cater to us. Cocaine might cater to us. I hope it doesn't, but it might. But video games, actually, we're not the target here. So it's an interesting thing for us to be offering commentary in the absence of having experienced it and even being able to understand it. So what I've tried to do is actually, you know, you can go online, you can watch folks play games. Yep. I've consulted on some video games. They're really fun. The storytelling's amazing. Yep. And increasingly, games are getting away from just the action, just the first-person shooting or, or an adventure, to actually making uh, decisions that have real uh, repercussions. Yeah. That's cool. You know, as you always say, you know, we always need more research on, on this kind of stuff because this, this digital world we're living in has very, very little and not very great research in most areas. Yeah. So, so we do need, I think, to really put our whole spectrum of digital media, whether it's gaming or texting or, you know, Instagram or Snapchat, whatever it is. Okay, okay, so, so, so let's cut to the chase then. We, we, we could talk all day about theory. But we're clinicians. We have a trade, right? Yeah. Like parents come to us. They don't want to know like the philosophical underpinnings for how you define no, addiction. They want to know what, what to, to do. do. They want to right. know what to do. And so, they want to know when to worry. Right, right. So parent comes to you, let's say, and says, uh, look, the, the new um, 
uh, Red Dead Redemption, cool Western game, the new one, Red Dead Redemption 2. Took a while for it to come out, just just came out. My kid has been playing that for the last 12 hours. That's all they did this weekend was play this game for the last 12 hours. And that's what they can't wait to do in right. tomorrow. Is this okay? And, you know, the answer to that, and it's kind of like it's kind of like the problem with all of these diagnoses. It depends on how it affects your life and how it affects your kid. So let's say this kid is um, uh, an honor roll student, is the captain of the football team, is um, uh, is is uh, has you know, community service, spends time with the family, other than those twelve hours. But so what's so wrong? So what I would say to the parent is. To know how much of this is going to be a problem, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether the kid meets a diagnostic criteria or not. Yep. It matters how helpful is it for his development. How old, first of all, I want to know the age of this kid. I want to know if he still maintains friends. 14 to, years old, so 14, male, multiple friends, um, B student, plays one sport, but has recently decided that he's not going to do his usual spring sport because he would rather stay in and play video games because he sees that people can go pro with this. I would say, you know, it's a matter of watch and wait. I mean, how much does he give up? If He's giving up a sport. Well, you don't have to play three sports. Is he giving up friends? Is he giving up academics? Is he giving up prospects of going so, to so, college. So what you know, you're saying is, why make this something different? That we already know how to make these assessments. We, there's nothing unique about a video game. It's the same assessment we would make for anybody who's doing too much of anything. If a kid stays in their room all day and reads as a means of sort of not engaging with the world, even if they're reading Dostoevsky, we might say, you know what? we got to get this kid out of his we room got at a some problem. point. we yeah. got a problem. Yeah, so so I think that's the point that, that you and I agree on on this. Um, it's whether or not we decide to call this dependency, and there are certainly brain studies that show that it looks awfully similar to things like gambling addiction or substance abuse addiction, right. for that for that matter. It lights up certain parts of the brain right. that really kind of give you a charge. But there are plenty of things that light up that part of exactly. the brain that we're cool with. Reading stories lights right. up that part right. of the brain. Right. Movies light up that part of the brain. We're not prepared to say just because the part of the brain that feels good lights up, that means there's something wrong. If anything, that would be a particularly So if a kid sat down stance. once a week and read Dostoevsky all day long and said, you know, this is my reading day, and built that into his schedule and yep. built that into his life and then maybe wrote an essay about it in English class, you know, no, I don't think parents would, would think that that's such a big problem because it's not the number of hours. It's the frequency. It's the, it's the, it's, it's the, it's the duration. It's how it affects every kid. There's head. also a latency effect, or not latency age effect, but there's a latent effect. If you um, play, uh, like Grand Theft Auto, for example, after you play you're likely to drive, guys especially, a little bit more recklessly for about a half an hour to an hour after you play. And that's been replicated multiple times. So one of the things we could talk about is sort of game hygiene. Like after you play a video game, don't... Take a break. Yeah. Yeah. No, seriously. (laughs) I think we actually have to come up with these things. Back in the old days, after you came out of the Three Stooges movie, to show my age, people would kind of like act like... Poke each other in the eyes. Yeah, yeah, hit, yeah. They wouldn't hit each other over the head with a frying pan, but they would do stupid things, you know, or after, you know, an Austin Powers movie or after whatever kind of movie. There's a certain kind of imitative behavior that occurs after, you know, kids will watch a, a film or a cartoon. Well, that's what Jackass is all about. Exactly. That, yeah. And you want to basically say, that's what they say, don't do this. Okay, so I agree with you. So let's, um, since we have to wrap up. We're not, we're not sure that this meets the criteria for an addiction, but we're not sure that it doesn't either. And we're probably in agreement with the WHO and the APA. Right. It needs to be studied. It needs to be studied. 
One way to help kids process media in an emotionally healthy way is to make sure they're not just passive viewers, but engaged and aware of what they're doing. And now today we have a super expert. Where uh, our special guest to help us think more about this is Dr. Michael Robb, who's Senior Director of Research for Common Sense Media. He's been involved in research and educational outreach on issues involving media and kids for over 20 years. Uh, so welcome, Michael. So with your long history of research and guiding parents and teachers on how they can help kids navigate the different kinds of media, can you talk a little bit about media literacy and tell us more about what it is? Absolutely. So the, the word literacy usually describes the ability to read and write, and reading literacy and media literacy have a lot in common. Right? So when you start with reading, you start with recognizing letters, and then you identify words and understanding what words mean. Then readers become writers. And then with more experience, readers and writers develop really strong literacy skills. Now, media literacy is the ability to identify different kinds of media and understand the messages that they're sending. So kids take in a huge amount of information from a wide array of sources. Um, and far beyond just traditional media, like much more than just TV or radio or any of that stuff. Because, um, you know, you have text messages, you have memes, you have viral videos, all kinds of stuff. But media all shares one thing, which is that somebody created it and it was created for a reason, right? And understanding that reason is the basis for media literacy. So somebody whose media literacy is really just someone who's learning how to kind of read media. And I think it's really important now since you know the digital age has made it really easy for anybody to create media you know we don't always know who created something we don't always know why they made something and we definitely don't know always whether something is credible so that makes media literacy you know tricky to learn and teach but something that's definitely essential so one of the things that when parents have asked me um what do you want i think about a certain video game or a certain app or a certain movie. Um, and I say, well, you know, you really should go to Common Sense Media uh, because they have um, reviews and articles. And, you know, it turns out that most of these parents have not sat down and played a video game with their kids or gone to the apps uh, that the kids use, or, and they just don't have a clue. So I say, you know, you can find out a lot. Um, so who writes and your reviews are terrific, but who writes these reviews in such a balanced and nuanced way so that so that a lot of different opinions uh, about media can be presented? I mean, so how do you guys put that together? Yeah, uh, thank you for the nice compliment. Um, you know, we have a great editorial team that rates a ton of different kinds of media, and it's all based on a developmental rubric that we've developed, right? And that, that rubric that we use is based on the best research we have on how media affects kids in different ways at different ages. Right? We don't treat all kids as if they're some kind of monolith. Um, so we rate media based on both um, age appropriateness. Um, you know, for some digital media, we also rate based on kind of what kinds of learning potential it might have. Um, but we also know that every family and every kid is different. Um, but all families need information to make great media choices. And so we break down the ratings into lots of different kinds of areas. So you know, educational value, uh, how much violence is in a piece of media, sexual content, uh, language, um, positive things like, you know, is there positive messaging in a piece of media or positive role modeling, um, good representations? There's uh, really no one size fits all solution for every family. So, you know, people can take what we have and just kind of adjust for themselves. 
And you, you know, we also have parent reviews and kid reviews. Um, and you can see that people sometimes disagree with us and, and that's okay. So let's look at kids. Uh, so parents are always asking, you know, whether a child or a teen is able to critically think about the media that they're watching, mm-hmm. um, uh, whether it's the news or Instagram, or TikTok. So how can a parent or teacher uh, help to build the skills at certain developmental ages to critically think about what they're watching and say, no, this is, this is not cool or, or, oh, no, this is really pretty good or I want to get off of this. Because so, we want our kids to actually be able to eventually critically think about you know, the material that they're getting. Absolutely. And I think the first thing to keep in mind here is that this isn't like some on-off switch that you just trigger and kids are able to do it. I mean, this is something that develops over um, a a lifetime of experience. And we often call it a, we call media literacy, it's a habit of mind, right? Something you practice until it becomes more intuitive, more natural. And, you know, when you want to build this up, there are some key questions that you can ask or you can help your kids ask um, when teaching media, media literacy. Like, who created this, right? Was it a company? Was it an individual? And if so, who, who is that individual, right? Maybe it's a comedian, maybe it's an artist, a politician, um, or maybe it's like anonymous, and why do you think it's anonymous, right? So who created this is number one. Another question to get in the habit of asking is, why did they make this? Right? Was it just to inform you of something that happened in the world, right? For like a new story, you know, was it something that was made to change your mind or your behavior, um, like like an opinion essay? Maybe it's just to make you laugh because you saw, you know, this funny meme. Um, or often, you know, in my line of work, because <laughs> I'm dealing with kids on YouTube, is it something that's meant to get you to buy something, right? Is is it an ad? Um, another question to get in the habit of is like, who is this message for? Right? Is this for kids? Is it for grownups? Do you think maybe they're trying to like reach girls or boys? Um, and, and why do you think that? And then there's a whole other you know set of questions about like you know what techniques are they being used to to make it something seem credible or believable? Um, you know what details do you think they might be leaving out and why? Uh, how messages are making you feel? Whether others might feel the same way if they were watching the same message. There's, a, there's just a whole load of stuff that you don't have to pepper your kid with all of these questions every time, but maybe one or two of these just to kind of get them into the habit of thinking about like, oh yeah, somebody did make this. I'm like, what did they want me to get out of this? And as kids become more aware of and exposed to news and, and current events, you can apply these steps to, to radio, TV, but also, you know, online information, you know, social media posts and things like that. So these are conversations that parents and kids should be having from early on all the way through teenage teenagers to young adults, uh, if I get you right, what wh- what about the value of looking at apps and media or games together? Oh, absolutely! And actually, that's one of the kind of main recommendations we make about you know how do I support a healthy media environment? So, to the extent that parents can either co-view or co-play. Uh, you know, apps or games with their kids. A, it'll give them an appreciation for what their kids are into, um, but it also serves as a bonding time. Like, you know, let's let's use technology to bond and, and build relationships. One of the things that we know about child development is just how important relationships are to healthy development. We also know that kids like media, they respond to media, like we should be doing what we can to make sure that that media time is not just a source of conflict as it often is in a, a lot of families, but also a time 
um, for, for bonding and warmth and conversation. Um, it's not always easy or possible to, you know, watch everything with your kids or, or play stuff with your kids. And if you can't do that, you know, try to find times and places where you can ask. So like the dinner table is a great place to sit down and A, that's a great time for to put away a device. But also if you want to have a conversation about like, oh, what were you watching? Um, tell me about like a, an episode that you were um, that you were watching. Kids are often very excited to talk about media. If you ask them, what did you do today at school? They may give you a blank stare and you know a mumble of an answer that goes nowhere. But they get very animated talking about like the media that they like, and so that's a really good springboard, um, you know, for using technology uh, for for bonding. Well, what what parents ask me all the time: Should I be looking at their cell phones, their texts, their emails, you know, without their knowing it? And and I say absolutely not. Why? I agree with you, but why? Why do you say it? Well, I say number one because because they need to trust you and they need to know that you trust them and you're not going to do that by going behind their back and and violating their privacy and their autonomy this is mostly for you know like for you know late school age teenagers and young adults okay so um if if what you want to do what if you really want to build trust if you really want to have open discussions if you really want to have conversations about drug, sex, rock and roll, or whatever it is, or about self-harm, or about feeling terrible about things, then you don't, you, you're defeating yourself by invading, because invading their privacy, because you're going to drive them away, and, and they're not going to trust you to actually talk about things in an open way. What if you tell them that you will be looking at their information, their social media, their text, whatever? Then they'll from start, time to time. Then I think what, what they'll do is they'll either, um, you know, <laughs> say some nasty things to you and it'll, it'll, it'll harm the relationship. But I think what they'll also do is they'll figure out a way to have a separate account with a separate password that you don't know about and they'll find a devious way to get around you. So how is that any different? Again, we're just doing this dialectic yeah. thing here. How is that any different from when I was growing up, you're growing up, and you said, I'm going out, and your parents say, where are you going? You say, I'm going over to Billy's house. But really, you're going to a big party down the street where there was a lot of booze being served, and right. and you weren't going to tell them that. And of and, course, and none of us ever did that. Never, no, of course we did. I mean, of course we did. Yeah, so... And, and kids do do... So how is this different? I think it is different. But I, I think it's different, can too. We get, can we kind of crystallize in what way it's different well for one thing um is it a matter of degree it, well it's a i think it's a matter of a number of things one is these these things that are happening in schools and at home if they're not if the questions are not asked are you feeling okay are you doing okay are you you know uh you know thinking of hurting somebody or yourself you don't have those discussions, that's a missing part. And so asking, oh, where are you going? The kid might lie about it, but the kid can lie about it digitally too. Okay, so that's one thing. But the second thing I think is, is that it's our parents typically in those days did not get in the car and follow us without our knowing about it. They couldn't. We'd know. we know. Right. But now they can do all of this surveillance without one's knowing about it. And that creates an atmosphere of fear, of anxiety, of concern, of distrust, of, you know, a big brother watching. I yeah, mean, no, it does have a big brother kind of feeling. It, it has it. an Orwellian kind of feel to it that that is um, 
not healthy. Uh, do you ever watch Black Mirror? No. Uh, it's so good. It's so good. So you should watch it. Uh, it's so they're each, it's an anthology for folks. A lot of folks have uh, seen it, but for people who haven't, it's an anthology, which means you don't have to watch it in order. Each one is a separate episode, and it takes current technology just maybe a step or two further than where it is wow. in a way that's highly believable. And there was one episode in the second season, maybe uh, Jodie Foster actually directed or wrote, or maybe both. But the the point of it is uh, you can have something installed in your child's eyes from the day they're born, wow. and then you can go onto your iPad or, or an iPad-looking device. see what device, they're seeing. See exactly what they're seeing. Oh, wow. So at any time, you can check up on where they are, which is actually what a lot of parents would like to know. Like, have you seen Johnny? I wonder where Johnny is. Is he really at football practice, or is he not? So this person does this technology in this particular episode allows the mom to do this and not only that anything that is uh unnerving to the child the mom can kind of erase so that the child can no longer see it it becomes blurry so what is more building of distrust and dishonesty um uh, and and paranoia for good reason than technology used in that way. I well, mean, so that's so the reason Black Mirror is such a potent show is yeah. because it takes these to things the a little bit to the extreme, yeah. but then it allows us to ask these questions. Parenting, uh, and we know this because we're parents, yeah. it's always been about this very uh, wobbly tightrope that you walk where you give your kids enough freedom to grow up, but not so much that they can get into trouble and you're going to blow it some of the time and right. you just hope you don't blow it in a big way. As the technology comes on and promises you the possibility of never blowing it in a big way, it becomes awfully enticing for parents and for schools to buy into it because who doesn't want to protect their kids? But what we forget is that that level of protection actually becomes harm. I think that's really important. I'd love for there to be a real effort into studying how effective it is for you to monitor your child's social media. I, we don't have that data. I've looked really hard for that data. It really doesn't exist right now. I'm sure it will. It'll just start to exist iteratively because people will start to collect it over time. But in the short run, like before that happens, I think what we tell our uh, the parents and the kids, it's that golden mean, right? Like the technology's there. Kids have always found a way of getting away with yeah. things. They'll figure out a way to get past the technology yeah. too. Doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense to monitor. If you monitor too much, you might actually risk losing their trust. And at a certain point, you have to balance the importance of their trust with the importance of just, um, you know, letting them uh, take some risks and hoping for the best and knowing that you'll be there to help them if, if need be, which is not all that comforting, but it's still more comfortable than having your child think every move is being looked at. We don't like police states. We don't want to create one for kids. It leads me to... Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, so are are you going to tell the parents to delete all the apps and and put restrictions on the phones? No. I think think part of the... Absolutely not. I mean, we've learned... Like I said, we've learned that censorship prohibition is, is... Never works. It backfires. What would be helpful would be to help adults as well as kids learn how to harness uh, digital media uh, for better rather than for worse. And that means, um, frankly, because of the power and the pervasiveness and the, ex- the extent and the depth 
of, of this media. We really do need media literacy uh, curricula from K through college and beyond. How do you learn social etiquette on the media? How do you kind of uh, avoid cyberbullying or, uh, or, or sexting? Um, how do you avoid putting other people down? Uh, how do you get into civil conversations using social media? It's such an integral part of our lives. I think it should be part of our social emotional learning curricula. You know, and I think that it's really important for us as parents to to have that awareness and understanding of what their kids are doing and what motivates them. And so asking again, what apps do you use? You know, why do you use them? Show me how they work. You know, even inquiring for them, like, you know, what do you like about these apps or what do you like about social media? And and do you ever encounter anything that makes you feel bad in any way? Anything that really just particularly like gets under your skin in any particular way um, would be really helpful in really understanding, you know, obviously first what, what they're doing um, and, and why they're doing it, what motivates them, um, you know, what drives them to use it. Uh, and, and then try to supplement, because I agree with you, censoring and, and taking away is, is not going to help, but but alternatives to social media, you know, like you said, sitting at the dinner table, we have a no phone policy at the dinner table, at any table, which I'm still, I still have to fight every time you sit at the table, like, is that, is that your phone? Because I will take it. Um, but, you know, we, we have, we have, you know, phone time. Um, we, we go out, we're out, you know, doing something active outside together, like we put the phones away and, and we, we, just try to be mindful in the moment and enjoying the activity or, or each other. But I, those things are important and they have to be deliberate. And again, just like you said earlier, if you don't put your phone down, we can't expect them to put their phones down. At any rate, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we hope that, um, that, that this was a helpful conversation. It's certainly not over. It's just the beginning of a new era that we're all in. And um, we hope that our conversation will help you have yours. I'm Jean Bresson. And I'm Khadija Booth Watkins.